Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Masselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we've seen a spate of public health concerns dominate the news of late. The water crisis in Flint, Michigan is still unfolding, and the impact on the health of the region's population is still being assessed. Well, that's right, Mark. And there is still a state of emergency in Flint, Michigan. They had switched the source for Flint's water supply from their Detroit source to the Flint River two years ago in a move to save money. But the result? The river's much more toxic water was fed through antiquated pipes into homes and businesses in the region during a two-year period, and that caused lead to leach into the area's tap water, and that has created a major health crisis. The water supply has since been switched back to the original source, but the damage may have been done. Even small amounts of lead can cause permanent brain damage in children. It's particularly concerning when you consider that it's a result of the failure of officials tasked with protecting public health and well-being. Well, the truth uh, is, Mark, that we may not know for years just how much damage has been done. Many children who are exposed to toxic levels of lead don't show immediate symptoms, but serious problems can emerge later as they get older, and much will need to be done to mitigate those health and perhaps developmental issues as well as re-earn the public's trust. So in the meantime, most Flint residents, they're living and bathing with bottled water. And there's another public health threat that's uh, dominating the news lately, Margaret. The mosquito-borne Zika virus has been cutting a wide path through South and Central America as well as the Caribbean, sparking health warnings from the CDC, now the World Health Organization, and the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. The threat to unborn fetuses is believed to be very significant. In Brazil, the epicenter of the outbreak, thousands of babies have been born within the past year with a condition known as microcephaly, or abnormally small heads and brains. The World Health Organization is warning women of childbearing years to avoid these regions or, if they must go, to take extra precautions. A global team of epidemiologists is working to produce better testing and treatment options. Until then, it poses a very real threat to pregnant women and their offspring. It's something for health clinicians here to keep an eye on, Margaret. Speaking of health clinicians, the way they will train and work to meet 21st century health needs is changing, and that is something that our guest today is very well versed in. Dr. Edward Ellison is leading a team from the Kaiser Permanente Health System in creating a new medical school and a new kind of medical school based on their value-based coordinated care model. It will be interesting to hear about Kaiser's plan to launch this kind of medical school focused in on team care, patient-centered care, value-based care and better outcomes for the entire population. We'll also have a visit from Lori Robertson, the managing editor of factcheck.org, always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And always, if you have comments, please find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Ed Ellison in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Ariane O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The third open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act has come to a close without much fanfare. Still too soon to tell how much of a surge there was in the final days leading up to the January 31st deadline. The administration had been hoping to entice more Hispanics to sign up for coverage during this third go-around. Across the country, 20.9% of Hispanics are uninsured in the U.S. compared to 12.7% of blacks and 9.1% of whites. Meanwhile, the national uninsured rate is at an all-time low. 
Meanwhile, a Kaiser Foundation poll shows in spite of public rhetoric against the health care law, most people are satisfied with the health care they're receiving. The Kaiser Family Foundation poll revealed 71 percent of insured adults younger than 65 considered the health care services they received to be either excellent or good values. A majority, 61 percent, said their insurance plan was either excellent or good given its cost. And even though many insurance plans limit networks of hospitals and doctors, as well as procedures that are Covered. Only 12% said they had to change doctors because they weren't covered by their insurance plans. The World Health Organization is urging women of childbearing age to avoid much of South and Central America in the wake of the Zika virus outbreak. After an emergency session, WHO officials determined there is still much that's not known about the virus and whether it's directly linked to serious spikes in microcephaly, babies being born with smaller heads and brains. Officials are cautioning if women of childbearing years must travel to the region, they should take extra precautions. Global health officials are most worried about the million or so tourists who would ordinarily travel to Brazil for Mardi Gras. And teens are smoking less, but feeling more anxious than their predecessors, according to a recent study by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. The annual survey of teen behavioral health issues showed the percentage of adolescents who smoked or binge drank in 2014 actually dropped, while pot use went up about a few tenths of a percent. The 2015 behavioral health barometer did show a jump in the number of teens suffering from depression, however, the report noting 11.4 percent of adolescents 12 to 17, had at least one major depressive episode about an estimated 2.8 million adolescents. The report noting the need for better screening of depression and better treatment options for teens as well. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Edward Ellison, Executive Medical Director and Chairman of the Board for the Southern California Permanente Medical Group, serving 4 million Kaiser Permanente members in Southern California. And Dr. Ellison also assumed leadership of the Southeast Permanente Medical Group, serving the greater Atlanta metropolitan areas, also the national sponsor of a recently announced Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine based on their coordinated care delivery model, scheduled to open in 2019. Dr. Ellison is a family medicine physician who has served in various roles at Kaiser since 1984, earning numerous distinctions, including the Orange County's Family Medicine Physician of the Year Award. He earned his undergraduate degree at Duke, his medical degree at the University of Virginia. Dr. Ellison, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. It's a a pleasure. Kaiser, I think uh, most Americans know as a national leader in the development of integrated health systems driven by coordinated care, really focused in on cost containment and improving patient outcomes, really based on shared data. And it's a care model that in many ways offers a wonderful template for the transition towards more value-based care delivery system across the country. And we had one of your colleagues, Dr. Robert Pearl, on with us a few years ago talking about what makes Kaiser System so successful. And you've been with the organization for a while now. Can you tell our listeners about Kaiser's evolution from a young upstart health organization to this national model of value-based care delivery? 
Oh, sure, you bet. Well, I think one way that we can kind of understand our model is just to go back in our history uh, 70 years ago to when, when we started. Back in the Great Depression, there was a really the first permanente physician was Dr. Sidney Garfield, hired to deliver care to the workers who were building the California aqueduct. And being the Depression, there was not much money, so he was trying to think about how can I staff my clinic and have the supplies I need, and he took on the idea of prepayment. He went to the workers and said, for a modest fee each week, if you pay me, I will provide all the care that you need. And they thought that was a great idea, Mm -hmm. and and with that, he was able to assemble a clinic, a staff, uh, to take care of the workers. And then as he was walking across the work site one day, he saw there were nails on the ground. And he thought, gee, if I pick up these nails, then the worker doesn't get injured. They don't miss a day of work. They're not in my office needing care that I could have prevented. So the idea of prevention was born. And when World War II came along and Henry Kaiser was asked to build battleships at a very rapid pace, then he asked his good friend Sidney Garfield to come and provide care for the workers at the at the shipyards. And so that marriage of, of Permanente Physician and, and Henry Kaiser and his resources brought about this care delivery model that was based on prevention and prepaid care and thinking differently about how we deliver health care in this country. The entities developed so that we had a nonprofit hospital health plan system, which is the Kaiser uh, side of the house, as it were, and then the Permanente Medical Groups, which are the physician groups. And uh, what makes our system and our, our model really special, I believe, is that we do have the separation. So the hospital health plan is a nonprofit, which means the revenues go back into caring for the members, and then independent, autonomous, self-governing medical groups. So the physicians are in charge of making the care delivery decisions, the quality decisions. It's that alignment of vision and values that allows us to succeed in, in a different way with a different model of care. I would say that for me as a physician, what makes this a great place to practice and for patients to receive care is that the hallmarks are first and foremost, you know, being patient-centered. It is all about the patient, that we make our decisions based on evidence, uh, evidence-based medicine and practice, that the care is physician-led and yet the physician is very much part of a team and the team is integral to caring for that patient, that our care is technology-enabled, connected by this electronic health record, that we're also focused on the communities that we serve. And we understand how systemness and how systems come together to provide the best level of care for patients. Respecting the care across the continuum helps us to um, ensure the best outcomes for our members. So you put all those things together, it provides a care model that I believe answers a lot of the questions that are asked today about how can healthcare evolve to better serve our country and, and the people of our country. Well, Dr. Ellison, now you've got another kind of template for the organization. Your CEO, Bernard Tyson, has announced the formation of a new medical school, uh, one that's based entirely on the Kaiser Permanente model of care, saying the time's come to rethink the way we prepare medical students for a value-based care system. So talk to us about what you and your colleagues in the organization identified as really missing from the current way that medical training is happening in this country and why you felt an entirely new approach was called for? Well, I think we all recognize that we're going through probably the most seismically significant change in healthcare in our country's history. Um, and, and the answer for that change is not about running faster on a wheel. Physicians are, are struggling. Burnout is at an epidemic proportion for physicians. 
And so it's really about transforming care. And we need to prepare physicians for this new world, for this ability to practice in the environment that I was describing a few minutes ago, one that does understand the physician's role as both leader and team member, one that does uh, utilize technology and yet also understands elements of culturally responsive care and social determinants of care. So it's a situation where we're all working together to help all boats rise to understand how we can both transform medical education and the training of physicians to meet this need for the future. We have brought together through the last number of years recognized uh, medical educators from across the country, some of whom are deans from some of the most prestigious medical schools in the country, to help advise us and help us think about how we might do this, because we did feel we had a lot to bring to the table in this regard. And they were very encouraging to us. They said, look, we're all in this together, and we all need to think about how we can transform, and we can all do it from where we stand. And you, as part of this coordinated, integrated model of care delivery, bring a unique perspective. So that's really how we we came about um, thinking in the first place that we had a lot to bring to physician education. It was the time was right. And again, those elements of being patient-centered, evidence-based, you know, physician-led, as well as part of a team being culturally responsive and using technology and understanding the social determinants of care and how we would implement those elements into how we serve a diverse population. How do we create increased diversity among medical schools to better reflect the, the populations that we serve. So all of those elements together seem to fit well with our learnings and our model, something that we could contribute on the national stage to ongoing medical education. You know, you have a lot of nice hand-in-glove relationship. And as you've just mentioned, you've really gone out and brought some of the best and brightest people in the country together as you've been thinking about medical education. And certainly in the area of quality improvement, uh, we had Dr. Christine Castle, a guest on our show recently. And she left her uh, leadership post at the National Quality Forum to become the planning dean uh, of the Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine. And could you tell our listeners why Dr. Castle was such a good fit for the post? Well, as we all know, it, it is all about quality. It's about making lives better and improving quality. So Dr. Castle has great perspectives, not only as her leadership role formerly in the National Quality Forum, but as you know, with the American Board of Internal Medicine, American College of Physicians. Uh, she's also formerly the Dean of the School of Medicine uh, and Vice President for Medical Affairs at Oregon Health and Science University. So she has that background. But on a more personal level, um, we know Chris from her role as a, a former board member for Kaiser Foundation Health Plan and Hospitals. And so she understands, she knows the organization. So she brings that national perspective, as well as an understanding connectivity to Kaiser Permanente. Uh, we have a core planning team for the School of Medicine that also has representation from Permanente, multiple uh, Permanente physician leaders who are very engaged in medical education. And so Chris is joining that, that team. That's a great evidence of collaboration. That is what our organization is about. You know, Dr. Allison, the concept of teamwork, team-based care, team vitality, uh, these have all uh, certainly entered the lexicon of 21st century healthcare care uh, and maybe even medical education. Tell us what you're going to do, what the, what the Kaiser School of Medicine approach is going to be to really embed this concept of, of teamwork, and with teamwork comes certainly interprofessional collaboration. Uh, you know, Kaiser Permanente, we, we absolutely view medicine as a team-based sport. 
all voices matter in caring for patients. We all have something that, that we can do to help elevate the care of, of the member. So, for example, we have systems in place such as the proactive office encounter where at every touch point that a patient comes into our system, we're able to identify if they have care gaps that need to be closed. Perhaps they're, they're overdue for the mammography or their colonoscopy. And so we're able to engage the entire healthcare team in helping to advise the member of this need and to arrange for that care to be delivered. One of my favorite stories about that is a patient named Mary Gonzalez who came in to see her allergist and the receptionist noted that Mary was overdue for her mammogram. So Mary was, well, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. But the receptionist was insistent, said, no, we're going to schedule that mammogram for you now. And so they found a, a, an early cancer, and fortunately because of that, Mary was cured. And so we have many, many examples of how the team all comes together, using this information that allows us to understand where each patient is in their own journey. In primary care and specialty care, we know that utilizing um, advanced practice providers, so nurse practitioners and PAs using RNs, medical assistants, social workers, physical therapists, pharmacists, that we all have a role to play. It's also a great way to distribute the care appropriately across that continuum. So we maximize all of our talents in a coordinated way. It improves the outcomes, and it also helps us to leverage everyone's skills and talents, especially in a day and age when we know that there are shortages, particularly for physicians and particularly primary care physicians. We're speaking today with Dr. Edward Ellison, Executive Medical Director and Chairman of the Board for the Southern California Permanente Medical Group. He's also a national sponsor of the recently announced Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Allison, let's uh, talk about something that will surely be a primary tool for care delivery for healthcare providers of the future, and that's technology. And, you know, this is a, a new generation of uh, people communicating in different ways. Tell our listeners about how training students to navigate health information technology are going to play a role in the curriculum and the cultivation of the next generation of primary care providers. So you're right. The millennials, the generation coming out today is so savvy with all aspects of technology. And our, our, our members, our patients are also uh, very savvy and, and increasingly looking for what they want, when they want, how they want it, right? That's what uh, mobile technology allows us to do. So when you can apply systems of care and that electronic health record so that every touch point um, allows you to know that patient's history of what their needs are in that current moment, to bring all that together, it's very powerful. Putting these tools in the hands of physicians who understand how apply them in systems of care and as part of a team magnifies the ability to use that data in, in a really powerful way. But it, what's also exciting is what it means to the patient. So as a Kaiser Permanente member, for example, we have uh, an online uh, system called kp.org. And you can go on to kp.org and you can book appointments and you can look up your lab results. Uh, you can email your doctor. And so it begins to put more um, power, as it were, and opportunity in the hands of the patient. I've, I'm a member also, right? So so I've had my labs done, and when I'm in my way home from the from the lab, I get an email that says your lab results are ready, and I can go online and check it without even having to contact the doctor's office. And so, that's pretty powerful. So the use of technology from video visits, um, we can connect specialists to primary care physician and take care of a patient need without having to refer to the specialist for the right condition. So it's more convenient for the member, better use of everyone's time. But I also want us to think about innovation in a different way, the social determinants of care. And we know that the most powerful change is behavior change. And if we can understand how better to meet the patient from where they stand, 
those are ways in which we can help to impact the patient for, for the better in the way that they manage their health through your, your place of worship or whether it's through your golf foursome or whether it's where you congregate in your community. Those are places that we can begin to impact, understand your needs, and help to engage you in ways that will improve your health and engage those around you in supporting you. Well, Dr. Allison, I think what you're, you've really spoken powerfully to is that it really is a new model of, uh, of education and training to respond to these very issues we talk about. So as I think about your medical school, I, I can't help but uh, wonder what else are you thinking about in terms of uh, education and training for the other people on your team? Are you envisioning developing uh, schools of nursing, social work, postdoctoral psychology training? What other kinds of uh, education and training are you thinking about as part of building this team of people? So we participate in teaching on many levels. We have residency programs already within our system of care. We graduate more than 600 uh, residents of our own. We have thousands more who come into affiliate programs. We have a number of our physicians who are clinical faculty at medical schools and our communities across the country. Uh, we have nursing students, nurse practitioner students who rotate with us. That whole focus on education and research is very much part of who we are. You know, I know also another thing that's in your DNA is to think about the diversity of the provider community that you're going to uh, raise the next generation of. And how are you focused in on making sure that you have uh, diverse primary care practitioners who represent the various populations that you serve? It's one of our fundamental values, and, and that sets a tone and it sets a culture, and culture is everything. So, so for example, um, there's a, a program called the Hippocrates Circle. Hippocrates Circle goes to middle school and high school students, particularly those from underserved communities and underrepresented communities who have an interest in medicine. And we link them with mentors. So you can say, I had a challenging background in medicine, and I was able to achieve it, and let me show you how. So the missing piece in this arc for us was the medical school. We are very focused on closing gaps and, and uh, disparities, and we've been able to, to, we're not there yet, but more successfully than most uh, in the country, been able to begin to close mm -hmm. care gaps in hypertension control, for example, in the African-American population. And to do that, I, as a caregiver, all of our caregivers, um, we don't know what we don't know. And so we need to be teaching, uh, understanding, and then teaching about culturally responsive care. But part of that is also connected to having uh, leadership in our organization that is diverse and reflective. And so we're doing a lot of leadership development, understanding how do we promote voices in the organization who are reflective of both the physician population, the, the, the workforce that we represent, and the communities that we serve. And then how does that connect also just to wellness and resilience? Because as Nate, Rachel Naomi Remen said, the most powerful uh, way to prevent burnout is for just to, to know me as me, to see me as me. So it's all connected, how we take the best care of our members, how we create a workforce and a physician workforce that is diverse and resilient, and, and how it promotes well-being and, and great teamwork uh, is all based on those values that we do understand you, we do value you, and we do seek uh, to to promote that in this organization. So it's, it's work that we've been um, have taken on for quite a while and that we're continuing to, and the medical school is a natural extension of that work. We intend for our medical students to go into the communities to visit their patient homes. Uh, we have programs like the Promotories programs where um, medical students and residents go into the community, go into their patients' homes to understand how they can best meet that patient's needs and to learn more about the communities that they serve. That's part of what the curriculum will be uh, for the medical school. Uh, we 
have a national a diversity and inclusion council that helps us to understand how we can promote a diversity and inclusion across the organization, how that impacts positively, how it brings in, as we talked before, the social determinants of care. Mm-hmm. So again, there's a, there's a lot of work that we're doing in our organization to understand how we move this uh, diversity and inclusion work forward and how that will inform the medical school and vice versa. It'll be almost like a virtuous uh, cycle, mm-hmm. uh, I believe. We're also considering um, scholarships for students from underrepresented and underserved communities so that we can um, advance the inclusion of, of students who perhaps might otherwise not have that opportunity to attend medical school. We've been speaking today with Dr. Edward Ellison, Executive Medical Director and Chairman of the Board for the Southern California Kaiser Permanente Medical Group and national sponsor of the recently announced Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine. You can learn more about their work by going to the website kp.org share or follow them on Twitter at kpshare. Dr. Ellison, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, another open enrollment period for the marketplace plans of the Affordable Care Act comes to a close at the end of January. So let's take a look at the projections for how many would sign up, how many actually have signed up, and the overall numbers on the reduction in the uninsured under President Obama. As of June 2015, 9.9 million people had secured their own insurance through the state and federal insurance marketplaces. Last October, the Secretary of Health and Human Services predicted that number would increase only a little in 2016, moving up to 10 million people. The Congressional Budget Office's projections are higher than that. It said in January that it estimated 13 million people would have exchange or marketplace coverage per month on average in 2016. The vast majority of those, 11 million, would receive subsidies, CBO said. But those numbers are lower than what CBO has said in the past. It had previously projected that 21 million would have exchange plans in 2016. In its recent report, CBO said that most of the unsubsidized folks whom it no longer expects to buy exchange plans would instead buy insurance directly from an insurer. Medicaid coverage, meanwhile, has exceeded CBO's previous estimates. By 2025, CBO now expects about 14.5 million people to be on the Medicaid rolls due to the ACA. That's 3 million more than what CBO had estimated just last August. Looking at the overall numbers under President Obama, we turn to the National Health Interview Survey conducted by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. During the first six months of 2015, the most recent data available, about 28.5 million people of all ages said they were uninsured at the time of being interviewed. That's down from 43.8 million for all of 2008. It's a decrease in the number of uninsured of 15.3 million people since Obama first took office. The number of uninsured for 2010, the year the ACA was signed into law, was actually higher than in 2008, 48.6 million people, making the drop in the uninsured since the ACA higher than the reduction over Obama's entire time in office. 
And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Currently, about 2 million people around the world are suffering from end-stage renal disease or acute kidney failure. There are basically two options for these patients, kidney transplants, which are costly and severely lacking in available donor kidneys, or dialysis, also costly as well as time-consuming, requiring patients to undergo blood filtering treatments at medical facilities, lasting up to five hours per treatment, costing about $90,000 per year. A Montreal teen science project just may pave the way for another solution. Anya Pagarian developed a portable home dialysis kit that cost about $500 to produce, far less than the $30,000 dialysis machines currently in use. Her idea, inspired by her high school internship, working at a dialysis center in Montreal. You wouldn't have to make your way to the hospital, which is a problem for a lot of patients. Um, It's not necessarily easy to go three times a week to the hospital especially if you have maybe limited mobility. Pogarian says hundreds of hours of research led her to build a prototype of the dialysis machine, which is about the size of a typical game board, but pumps and purifies blood just as large-scale dialysis machines do. Her invention has earned her numerous awards and scholarships and the attention of one of Canada's key hematology labs, now supporting her continued research. She hopes this device can be developed throughout the world, especially third world countries, where a significant percentage of the population doesn't have access to either transplant surgery or dialysis, leading to early deaths of those patients. 10% of patients living in India and Pakistan who need the treatment cannot afford it or can't have it in any way. It's not accessible. So that's really what motivated me to continue. A relatively cheap, portable, easily assembled dialysis machine that could alleviate the cost and treatment hurdles of ongoing dialysis, keeping patients healthier longer, allowing them to be treated at home. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.